so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to Weekly Tech, a podcast of ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Peckham, the author of a recent book, Masters or Slaves, AI and the Future of Humanity, and we talk about the ethics of artificial intelligence. Mr. Peckham has spent much of his career in the field of artificial intelligence, founding his first company in 1993, which was listed on the London Stock Exchange. He's also part of a growing network of Christians in Europe and North America who's interested in artificial intelligence and has spoken regularly at the annual European Leadership Forum. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today on Weekly Tech. As we get started, I always like to ask authors, especially, a little of the background of why you originally wanted to write the book, and then also why did you want to write this book right now? Well, I guess the uh, origins of the the book are uh, overhearing a conversation with a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Bruce Little, and uh, he, he was talking with a group of uh, PhD students and uh, just commenting that he thought the two key areas that Christians should be giving some thought and concern to was artificial intelligence and neuroscience. And of course, this piqued my interest because I spent most of my career in uh, what is now called artificial intelligence. It wasn't so fashionable to call it AI uh, when I started out in the field. But I thought, uh, you know, this is an area that I'm supposed to know about. And so I need to start digging in a little bit and thinking a bit more uh, closely, having, to be honest, uh, not had so much to do with AI uh, latterly. And um, as I started to pick up on on what was happening, particularly in the ethical area, uh, I realized that there'd been quite an explosion of um, deployment of uh, artificial intelligence applications, which were really giving rise to a, a lot of ethical issues that were not, to be honest, to the fore uh, when I first uh, started out researching and well into the uh, Uh, 1990s, late 1990s, early millennia. And so that started me really thinking about the ethical issues. And uh, I was invited to give uh, a number of talks to a postgraduate group of uh, IFES. Uh, So that 
prompted me to do a little bit more thought and, and uh, structuring of the ideas. And I think the real impetus to write something came when I was then after those talks invited to participate in a roundtable discussion with a group of other Christians. And uh, it was a, a, a advocacy group, quite a well-known advocacy group uh, in the UK. And I was quite taken aback by what I perceived was a, a, a lack of common ground in terms of how we thought about AI. Um, I think this particular organization were looking at whether uh, they needed to be more active uh, in, in this area in terms of advocacy. And I remember a couple of conversations about uh, along the lines of should sex robots be given uh, rights, for example, and uh, whether self-drive vehicles were, were a good thing to have. And, and I was finding people really seeming not to have too much of a problem with uh, self-drive autonomous vehicles or the idea perhaps even of giving uh, sex robots rights. So that's really what got me uh, down the track of putting my thoughts down on paper. And I think it's a really crucial time because it's not so much that artificial intelligence has rapidly developed in its capabilities, but rather it's rapidly developed in its deployment. And that's why I think it's really crucial that uh, we start to wrestle with these issues and have a real understanding of how it is shaping our humanity. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about your book is it's kind of this big overview of a lot of the big pressing issues. And you help to frame that within the Christian worldview, within the Christian framework. I think often when people hear about artificial intelligence, especially when I've talked about it, I typically get a reaction from some that it seems like AI is far off. It's very futuristic. It's not something we interact with every day, whether it's a self-driving car or images kind of come to mind of killer robots or autonomous weapon systems and things like that. It seems very far off and kind of like a movie plot rather than something we're using each day. So as we get started, can you help to define artificial intelligence and in some of the ways that we are currently using it every single day in our lives? Sure. And I, I, I resonate with what you're saying there is I think some people are a bit dismissive about AI because they do think it's some dystopian future and it's, it's way off into the future. Uh, and my concerns really are to do with what is happening today and tomorrow. Uh, I mean, really tomorrow, not, not in 10 years time. And the, the best way of, of thinking about this is to use the definitions which uh, the scientific community tend to use mostly about thinking about uh, artificial intelligence. And that is the, the utopia is super intelligence. That is something that behaves in a way that surpasses uh, human intelligence. General intelligence, artificial intelligence is a, a capability that is comparable with uh, a, a human being. Now, both uh, general artificial intelligence and, and superintelligence is, in my view, a, a long way off. We're, we're nowhere near that. But artificial intelligence, as it is deployed today, 
it's really simply a set of algorithms. There are all sorts of, of different programs and algorithms that can be used. But in essence, it, it is a, a what we call a stochastic process, a process that models data, lots of data, and then is able to predict outcomes, predict uh, whether an image that you present is an image of a dog or a cat, for example, based upon uh, a massive amount of, of, of training data. Now, what makes current technology really quite powerful is the absolutely massive amount of training data that is readily available to train up these algorithms, these essential, essentially pattern-matching algorithms. When I was working in the field, we, we had to pay people to provide speech samples. My, my field is computer speech and language understanding, uh, and that's quite a challenging area. We see it now deployed in uh, things like Siri, Alexa, Google Home, and so on. But when I was working in it, it was really quite hard to get enough data. And we used to say there's no data like more data. Well, one of the reasons that uh, big tech uh, companies have been able to excel at it is because they have access to uh, millions and millions of, of, of samples of data for training. And uh, the machine learning algorithms, which are uh, behind what we, we often call artificial intelligence, just work off of masses of data, whether it's your browsing history, uh, whether it's uh, images of uh, pictures and so on. And that's why these, these algorithms have become so powerful, because there is so much data available, whether it's uh, medical history, MRI scan data, your browsing history, what you do on social media and so on. There's so much data available that uh, it's been possible to create all sorts of, of, of applications with this technology. And, and of course, the other two things that have helped to enable uh, artificial intelligence to get into the mainstream is the increasing computer power and uh, increasing amount of memory available. And uh, that's why we see, you know, quite pervasive use of artificial intelligence. I think the problem here is that most uh, people on a day-to-day -day basis are totally unaware that this, this technology lays behind all sorts of decisions that are made, whether you can have a credit, uh, whether you can have a credit card, whether somebody should be granted uh, parole, uh, for example, a first-time offender. And then we do see it being deployed in uh, things like uh, self-drive vehicles, uh, auto navigation systems and so on, which are a little bit more to the fore in, in terms of uh, public debate. But there's the, the very um, public side of it, and then there's the hidden side of it. The public side of it is where we're using uh, things like Alexa, uh, interacting with uh, social media and, and so on. That's where most people may not know it, but they are actually interacting with machine learning algorithms. Uh, and then many corporations are using it in ways that are hidden from the public. Uh, and that's typically where decisions are being made, um, so-called decision support systems. So that's a little bit of a, of a quick overview of AI, where it is now and uh, 
what the future may hold in terms of uh, more general capabilities. I would say that it is highly unlikely that we will ever see something that approaches the intelligence of a human. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is we, we can't even define actually what human intelligence is, let alone consciousness, which uh, is another uh, very complex area to debate. Yeah, so, so I, I think that's, that's where we are at the minute with relatively simple algorithms, but powerful in terms of what they can do in an extremely narrow domain, what we would call narrow artificial intelligence rather than general artificial intelligence. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I do appreciate about the way you go into this is I want to put a pin in that about what does it mean to be human um, because defining human intelligence and consciousness is so key and you do that later on in the book. But before we get there, I want to dig in a little bit on um, earlier you had mentioned that we're in the age of implementation with artificial intelligence, not so much as development. Obviously, there are new developments each and every day. But you argue that we're in an age of implementation. So why do you think that is the case? And what's kind of changed about maybe the way that yourself or even kind of the general public starts to think about technology? I think we often always assumed technology was simply a neutral tool. But I think we're now starting to understand and it's kind of the lights are kind of turning on for people to realize that technology is not neutral per se that these technologies, these tools, they shape us. They not only shape us as human beings, they shape the world around us. And so just kind of dig in a little bit on what you mean by the implementation of AI and then also how that kind of shift in your mind from going from a, a neutral tool to kind of a value-laden tool. Um, how did that come about? Well, I think actually technology has, has never been value-neutral um, I, I used to think that, to be honest, uh, in my early days as a scientist and technologist. But I think the more I've thought about it uh, and researched and, and read what other people have, have uh, discussed about this topic, the more I've realized that technology is actually value laden for, for two reasons. One is that technology, of course, is invented, it's designed, it's developed by someone, a human being. And then, of course, it's used by uh, human beings. Uh, and fundamentally, from a Christian worldview perspective, we uh, know that we are flawed human beings. We tend towards uh, moral autonomy. We want to do our own thing and go our own way. And we rebel against the God who made us. And that means that sometimes even with, with the best will in the world, the, the values that we bring into the design of a piece of technology can both shape that technology and then in the hands of um, those who want to promote it can be used in a way that, that appeals to uh, our vices rather than to our virtues. And then uh, as human beings using the technology, we'll find that uh, it, it isn't neutral because we come to that technology with, with our own value system. And one of the ways of illustrating the, the, the lack of neutrality in a way of technology is anything that you put in somebody's hands uh, creates an opportunity. I and mean, you take a gun, uh, you put a, a loaded gun into the hands of somebody or, or even a knife, it creates opportunities opportunities to, to use it 
perhaps for good in a what we might call a just war or for evil uh, in terms of uh, uh, mass killings, mass shootings, uh, the killing of, of, of innocent people. So without that, one would have had to have find uh, alternative ways to I- express the, the evil desires or intents that we may have. So technology in that sense does come uh, in a very uh, value-laden way. And we see it particularly in areas like social media uh, and smartphones, where it's well known now that, that there are things that deliberately and intentionally designed to uh, engage people, to suck them in, to keep them on the platform. Uh, and the ways in which that is done is to you know, appeal to our darker side, to our greed, to our vanity. And these things are really quite destructive in terms of uh, our, our human, humanity uh, and what it means to, to be a human being. I think that the digital world has accelerated this uh, impact of technology on us. Never before, I think, in the history of humankind have we seen uh, such a a rapid influence of of technology and a a rapid development and impact on so many people's lives uh, around the world. If you think about how widely used social media is in the space of, what, 15 years or so, it is just absolutely incredible. And that shapes not just individuals now, but whole societies, cultures. So it's, it's in my view, really quite a profound shaper and influencer of humanity. And, and it is, is not neutral. Sure, we can use technology for, for good, but it is also increasingly without us really being aware shaping us in, in extremely negative ways. Yeah, I think for myself, I underwent a similar kind of shift in my perspective because I think originally I was doing some research a while back and they say that a lot of Christians historically have thought of technology or tools as value neutral. Um, but I think, as you said, as you studied this material, as you dug into the research and you started to see kind of the social impact and social changes uh, going about with technology, I always like to categorize it as it expands our moral horizons. Mm, it mm. shows us opportunity that might not have been there or at least within our sight or our vision at the time. And so it, it kind of expands what we're able to see and what we're able to do coming from a sinful heart. But as we dig in a little bit on what it means to be human, I think that's one of the really key advantages to your work um, is that often I think when we talk about artificial intelligence, we start at AI rather than starting at what does it mean to be human. And the way I approach these things is understanding coming from a Christian worldview perspective is asking some of these big fundamental questions is, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? And then what does it mean to be human? So kind of I want to dig in a little bit there as you spend a chapter or two kind of digging into the image of God. What does it mean to you to be made in the image of God? And then how does that shape or form maybe the way that we go about using technology but or even developing these technologies for our society? Well, over the last uh, few decades, there have been a number of developments in the thinking about what it means to be made in God's image, the doctrine of Imago Dei, uh, if you want to put it in those terms. Traditionally, uh, it's tended to be thought of more as as what attributes do we 
have um, as as human beings that mirror the the attributes or the nature of God. When in Genesis, God says, let us make man in, in our image, uh, I think fundamentally that means that there are some aspects of the essence of God that we as human beings mirror. But the idea of, of the image of God goes a bit deeper than that. And, and, and some have suggested that actually what it's really about is the image uh, bearing, the, the, the responsibility to be icons, if you like, or, or vice uh, garants in, in the world and, and to uh, functionally have dominion o- over the world and, and act as, as God's vice garants. Um, I don't personally think that that is at all in conflict with the original uh, traditional view of, of man bearing uh, something or mirroring something of God's attributes, God's nature. Because, of course, how can we be his vice garants, uh, his stewards, if you like, if, if we don't actually also mirror something of his nature? Um, for example, uh, our ability to, to love our ability to uh, to morally reason. And a, a third area that some have sought to emphasize is the idea that we are created for relationships. Uh, and that comes out of the fact that God, uh, of course, is a triune God, as we understand it, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the, the plural is used in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Uh, and then that's mirrored by God creating woman for relationship with man. So we have the human-human relationship, which God is intentional about in his creation, and the fact that uh, there is a, a vertical relationship with, with God the Father, the Trinity, and, and that's shown to us in the early chapters of, of Genesis by uh, God uh, communicating with with his creation, with, with Adam and, and the naming of the, the animals and so on. Again, I don't see that at all as in competition with uh, the original idea of mirroring something of God's essence. I think the, the, the three aspects which I, I define and describe in, in the book are fundamental to our understanding, our full understanding of what it means to be made in God's image. So yes, through the fall, we've lost something of the the purity of God's image in us that happened when he first created uh, Adam. But nonetheless, there, there is something there that is, as we read the New Testament, being recreated were being recreated as believers after the image of Christ. And Christ, of course, is the exact representation of God. So what we can see there is that there's some brokenness that needs to be recreated. Uh, And what is it being recreated in? The image of of Christ. So I I think that's that's the foundation. And then... um, the important aspect for us, I think, particularly when we're thinking about the impact of, of technology and AI, is this whole idea that not only do we bear something of, of the essence of God, but we are to bear that image. We are to mirror it. We are to reflect it in the world in which we live and in which we walk. And 
it's that ability to mirror the the essence of God, which is is being dumbed down through our to be candid, our obsession with digital technology uh, and in particular uh, artificial intelligence, which many people won't see as artificial intelligence, but you know is manifest in things like uh, Alexa or our obsession with uh, Facebook, social media, and the algorithms that manipulate and and suck us in and keep us engaged so that uh, you know advertisers can push to us. Uh, and we should be mirroring this image of God. And, and these uh, technologies are uh, really quite significantly impacting and diminishing our ability to, to do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the things I appreciate about it is as you walk through each of those, there's been a lot of research as of late. I don't know if you've uh, kind of interacted with John Kilner, who argues for more of a Christological interpretation. So kind of a combination of the three fulfilling it in Christ. And so that's an area, especially within theological anthropology, that I think there's a lot of important work being done on the doctrinal level, but then applying that into technology ethics um, or getting into issues of bioethics or other types of social ethics, um, I think is a really promising area, an area that we here on the podcast and the resources we produce at the ERLC are hoping to encourage people to dig a little bit deeper into. One of the things that I appreciate about your book is, as I said earlier, you cover a lot of ground, um, obviously. So you're hitting a number of different areas. And there's two that really f- uh, kind of stood out to me. Um, that I think we hear a lot about, but we haven't thought a lot about. And first, one that I wanted to dig in on is kind of this um, idea of autonomy. So we hear a lot about autonomy in terms of self-driving cars or even autonomous weapon systems or certain types of autonomous robots. Can you help us to understand a little bit what's at stake in some of these conversations about autonomy and how the image of God, that foundation that you just laid out, how it informs um, how we think about our moral responsibility with technology. Mm, sure. Well, the, the whole idea in this space of aut- autonomous vehicles, autonomous weapons, is is that we can essentially create a vehicle, whether it be a taxi, whether it be a car or a, or a, a truck, uh, that, that can drive itself and, of course, make decisions uh, about what it should do particularly uh, in, in the area of uh, potential face, fatal accident. Uh, what, what do you do? Do you, uh, do, do you hit the boys, run out after his ball and preserve the passengers? Or, or do you drive into the uh, parked cars or the, or, or the wall? Uh, that's your only other alternative. Um, so there are a lot of uh, moral dilemmas that are raised by the whole idea of, of granting an artifact moral autonomy, that is, the ability to, to make decisions. Um, MIT have been running a series of experiments for some time now to uh, get the public to interact in making uh, their judgments about what would you do in this scenario or that scenario. And my understanding of the scriptures and the creation of man and woman is that God has created us with that uh, moral autonomy, that this is fundamentally part of what it means to be made in the essence of God, uh, that we have moral reasoning uh, and moral responsibility. Now, of course, in the fall, 
we sought to have moral autonomy apart from God. Uh, and so, you know, we disobeyed God. The devil said, hath God said, you know, raising the question. And of course, we, we, we thought, well, you know, no, we, we, we can do this. Uh, and so we rejected God's rule over us. But nonetheless, we still remain morally responsible and, and moral creations. And for that reason, I do not believe that there is any warrant in the scriptures, as I've read it, for us to hand over that responsibility to something that we have made. Sure, the argument is that, um, of course, a, a self-driving vehicle would be safer. It would make better decisions than a human would make. Well, we actually don't have the evidence of that uh, so far. I mean, there is a number of well-publicized cases of uh, Tesla's um, auto navigation system uh, failing, and, 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 and there have been a few fatal accidents. In fairness to them, they, they, they do tell you that you should be in control. But I think what this is illustrating is that we actually have no data at all in how safe a world might be if we had only self-driving vehicles. So, so that's a moot point in my view to argue that we would have a safer world. Actually, I think what is, is more important is to ask the question, does God allow us to delegate that responsibility? Even if it was less safe, and, and this argument, I think, also applies to the issues of mass surveillance and the surveilling for potential terrorists or trying to, to attract terrorists. The question that I think we have to answer is what, what sort of world has, has God put us in, even though it is fallen? Uh, and what are the responsibilities that he gives to us? And, and I think that we have to choose to serve God, to be those who are morally accountable to God, even though we may make wrong decisions, or a consequence of that may be that it is a slightly less safe world. And, you know, the, you could argue that, that, that it, man's quest, of course, for immortality is, is one of the drivers here. We want to live in a safer and safer world. Well, in one sense, there's nothing completely wrong with that. But where I think it goes wrong is where we now start to put our trust in technology rather than our trust in God. So technology becomes our savior. Technology is, is what makes us you know, fitter, weller, safer people as we move around. And we fail to recognize that we live in a corrupt and fallen world, which will be recreated one day. When, when Jesus comes again. So we cannot get away from the fact that we live in uh, a world that is broken and we have to accept the consequences of, of that broken world. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make any attempts to try and improve the world in which we live. It's just that I think, for me, there, there are some red lines that uh, I see as I understand scripture, and you know, this is an area we, we, we should have much more debate in. But for me, I think there are some red lines that we should not cross because we fundamentally diminish the image of God in us and our moral responsibility and our moral uh, accountability.
Yeah, I think that really goes to show the importance of ethics in general, not only throughout the Christian life, but even the, specifically the importance of technology and AI ethics, and that Christians are part of these conversations as they're being had in our societies, uh, because obviously there's a lot of regulation going on, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of research going into these, and this is where we hope to encourage Christians to step into these spaces uh, to bring that kind of thoughtful response and moral reflection uh, to a lot of these things, because ultimately we want to seek human flourishing. We want to seek the good as Christians, but even as our society. And we just have often different versions or different understandings of what that good is, which is why I think it's so important that Christians like yourself coming from a technology background or myself coming from more of an ethics background, philosophy background, is to step into these conversations and have a seat at the table in many of these conversations. I know that's something you've been able to do. I want to shift a little bit as we round out our time here on the podcast to another area that I think we're hearing a lot about today, but I don't think there has been significant moral reflection, especially from the Christian community on, which is the rise of sophisticated virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. Even in recent months, we've been hearing a lot from uh, the big tech companies like Microsoft or Facebook about investments in the metaverse and investments in uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. And I just wanted to ask you, how do you think Christians should start to think about some of these developments or what maybe are some of those red lines or maybe some of those contours of the Christian ethic that we should be aware of in these conversations? Because we're starting to see an emphasis more on virtual communities at times than our physical communities. And so obviously that's going to influence or impact or and shape us as human beings and our society. So help us think a little bit about kind of the rise of the metaverse or virtual reality and augmented reality and how we should think about that from an ethical perspective. I, I think the pandemic around the world has, has brought this into even sharper focus as we've had to, or even forced many of us to, to live in virtual communities. And uh, for, for me, that's been something that I've seen as temporary. It's actually highlighted the downsides of uh, virtual communities and, and the virtual world. But I, I think the development of uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, which, which goes a step further, is it's really on a spectrum of moving from uh, what I call the real world, the, the, the world that God has created and placed us in, into a, a virtual world of our creation and uh, actually meeting on Zoom for a church or for a home group is one manifestation of uh, the virtual world, if you like, where we're now seeing screens, we're not seeing the, the real person, we're seeing uh, an image of that person. Uh, and that's just extrapolated through then to the creation of uh, augmented reality where the, the real world in which we live now is overlaid with uh, an alternate reality. And it may be completely lifelike figures which are indistinguishable from humans that uh, are overlaid into the real world in which we live. And I think the dangers as I see it are that we lose touch with the real and that is the, the, the tangible world in which, which God has placed us. If we go back to some of the fundamentals in, in, in the book, the, the six areas that I outline of our humanity that are being impacted, 
uh, and one of them is relationships. We are made for real human-to-human relationships, not for virtual relationships over social media, over Zoom. I'm not saying that they don't have a place, but we are not created for those sorts of, of virtual relationships. And, and there's lots of, uh, of evidence, empirical evidence, being uh, developed uh, to, to show the dangers to relationships of things like social media uh, and uh, the virtual world. Uh, and as I say, I think that to move into virtual reality technologies and augmented reality technologies just takes that uh, even further And I believe that they will become highly immersive um, technologies, highly addictive, um, just like social media is is addictive. Um, I think that virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, will become uh, even more addictive to the point where it will be hard to distinguish between what is real and what is false. And I think the alarming thing is that I, I know it's a bit, it's a controversial area. I've talked with uh, brothers and sisters about this, and they don't all see it the way that I see it. It's an area that we do need to debate an awful an awful lot more. But I I, I do feel that we are in danger of sleepwalking into something that is going to become so pervasive, so addictive. Uh, that it will disengage us from the, the the world in which God has placed us, and you know we'll have disastrous consequences. Yeah, obviously there's so much here. I mean, this is a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, spending time with you today, Jeremy. I just want to thank you. One, thank you for your work in this area, uh, but also thank you for joining me today on Weekly Tech. It's been a really fun conversation. And I want to stay connected for sure. Thanks. Well, Jason, I've enjoyed. Uh, interacting with you two. And thanks so much for inviting me. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? And also make sure to share these episodes online with your friends and colleagues. If you enjoy listening to Weekly Tech each week, make sure to also check out our other ERLC podcast. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a quick rundown of what the ERLC has been working on this week, as well as updates on our work in Washington, D.C. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Christians, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. You can search for the ERLC podcast or Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. As a reminder, you can also connect with Jeremy and learn more about his recent book, Masters or Slaves, in the show notes. And make sure to sign up for the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.